And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Happy Monday, everybody, and welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show's mailbag episode. We're with you every Monday. I'm Tim McMaster here along with Ken Rosenthal. Ken, we're going to talk some awards, partially because we got some questions about awards, uh, but also because you got to see a potential award winner this weekend. But first off, how are you? I'm good, Tim. How are you? I am good. And let's start with where you were this weekend, which was in Chicago. Uh, You got to see Dylan Cease almost throw a no-hitter. I don't know how many no-hitters you've witnessed live or been close to witnessing. Maybe you can get into that as well. But Cease, as close as you can get, two outs in the ninth that's broken up. But it brings up a bigger topic, which is American League Cy Young Award and where Cease fits into it all. Yes, and I will get into that. But it's interesting you ask about how many no-hitters I've seen. So in 1987, in something like the seventh game I ever covered... Juan Nieves, then with the Brewers, he became a pitching coach later. Most fans now would know him as that. He threw a no-hitter for the Brewers against the Orioles in the old Memorial Stadium. And the game ended on a diving catch by Robin Yount in center field on Eddie Murray, a sinking line drive. It was a brilliant play. Covered one other no-hitter while I was in Baltimore. It was the Hideo Nomo no-hitter for the Red Sox. (laughs) And if you remember, John Hirschbeck was the plate ump, the... Strike zone was about the size of the Chesapeake that night, and it was a bit of a controversial no-hitter. And then I did one on television, and the one on television was for MLB Network. It was Roy Halladay's no-hitter in the division series against the Reds. That was quite a thrill. This last night was so much fun, and the crowd was great. They are sensing now. The White Sox are surging a little bit, and Cease was brilliant. There really weren't even any close plays. And then, of course, at the end, he chooses to pitch to a rise, throws a slider that was down but not down enough. Arise, whacks it to center field, and that was that. Eight and two-thirds of no hit ball, but he finishes with a complete game shutout. Brilliant performance. Now, early in the broadcast, I brought up that he was a Cy Young candidate, Cease, and that his path was clearer because of the injuries on back-to-back days or the injured list placements on back-to-back days of Justin Verlander and Shane McClanahan just in the past week. Those two guys, Verlander and McClanahan, I would have ahead of Cease right now. But when do they come back? Do they come back and finish strong? How is this all going to play out? That will be a factor. Now, of course, when I retweeted what I had said, Fox put it together, put a tweet out, fans started having conniptions, which is the typical situation on Twitter, as you know. What about Alec Manoa? (laughs) What about Framber Valdez? Hey, those guys are having great years. 
And yes, they may be ultimately the ones in the end, but Cease is really well positioned here. After last night, second to Verlander in ERA, Verlander has the best opponent's OPS. Cease is third behind Verlander and McClanahan. Strikeouts to walks, well, that's the one area where Cease is going to suffer because he does walk a lot of guys. That's McClanahan third, Verlander fourth, Cease 17th. Strikeout percentage, that's strikeouts per plate appearance. That's Otani right now who factors into the equation. He's first. And then walk percentage, Cease has the highest, the highest in the American League, and that will hurt him. But the question here is when does Verlander come back? Because to me, he's the clear front runner. It's not even all that close. Yes, McClanahan's had a great year, but Verlander has him in ERA by almost three-tenths of a run per nine innings. That's not an insignificant margin. Now, a couple of weeks ago, for those who read our website, you might have seen a column I wrote about Verlander, and I spoke with him about the possibility of winning the Cy Young at 39, coming off Tommy John surgery. And when I asked him the question, I did the interview in person, he got emotional even talking about it because of what he had been through trying to reestablish himself and, of course, the Tommy John recuperation. And he said that if he did win, it would be a bit emotional. So this raises the question, how hard will he push to come back with that calf issue he has? And how much will the Astros say, Justin, slow down. We need you for the playoffs. That's all that matters. From a team perspective, that's correct. But Verlander, looking for that third Cy Young, I'm sure will have some say as well, and it's a really interesting question. Now, if he doesn't come back until September 25th, something like that, and pitches, I don't know, 20, 30 fewer innings than Cease, whatever it might be, that's going to be a factor. For me, at least it would be. I'm not a voter in the AL Cy Young this year. And then McClanahan, it's kind of the same thing. When does he come back? How much does he establish himself? How does this all play out? Now, if Manoa has a big month of September or if Frommer continues to be as brilliant as he has been really for the better part of two seasons, either one of those guys could slip in as well. But Cease, with that performance last night, it kind of put him back on the map. Not that he was ever off it. He's been on it all year. Should have been an all-star, if you remember. So it's a really interesting race. And I'll talk about another interesting American League race as well, and that's the one for AL Manager. My colleague Dan Connolly of The Athletic wrote a really good column basically saying, this is over. This award is Brandon Hyde's. I tend to agree with Dan, and Manager of the Year is a different award than any of the others because it's always, I shouldn't say always, almost always, a reflection of the expectations that were set before the season began. And I think I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. Several years back, Cardinals President of Baseball Operations, John Mozeliak, was talking to me about this award, and he said, you guys. Now, whenever a player, coach, manager, or executive starts a sentence with you guys, it's trouble for us guys and women of the Baseball Writers Association of America. But what he said was... You guys make your picks before the season starts. You determine who the favorites are and who the teams that are probably going to be out of contention are. And then when one of these teams happens to defy your brilliant expertise, then of course (laughs) the manager of that team has to be manager of the year because how could you guys have been wrong? Actually, as much as I wanted to disagree, Lozalek had a point. The Orioles are the classic description of a team defying expectations. 
But Dan had a statistic in his column that really is the decisive one for me. And the statistic was this. Only five teams since 1900 have lost 110 games one year and then won at least 70 the next. So you lose 110, then you win at least 70. Now, of those five teams, none of them ever won more than 73 coming off 110 losses. The Orioles are on pace entering Sunday's play for 87 wins. They would win by far the most of any of these teams. So whether they make the playoffs or not, to me, it's got to be high. Now, there is a strong case for Scott Service in Seattle. And I had a note in my notes column, I believe it was last week, about the Mariners' proficiency in one-run games, not only this season under Service, but ever since he took over in 2016. He clearly is doing something right. But where the Orioles have come and how far they have come this season, I just don't know that you can deny Hyde. And then for Rookie of the Year, and we're going to get to MVP, just settle down. For Rookie of the Year, it's pretty obviously Julio Rodriguez to me, and I know Adley Rushman has had a huge, huge impact on the Orioles. Essentially, their resurgence started the day or around the time he came up, late May. But Julio has been up from the beginning. He's had a fantastic season. Jeremy Pena, Bobby Witt Jr., Yoan Duran in Minnesota, the reliever, he should get top three consideration as well. There are some other candidates, some really good candidates, but... For me, Tim, Julio Rodriguez is kind of a clear-cut choice. He's got the big moments, too, that people like to vote for at the All-Star Game with the Home Run Derby and everything he did there. So, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, You mentioned it. We're going to get to the MVP award, but that's one of the questions in the mailbag. So let's get to that. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved next week, you can do it two ways. You can call us at 646-543-7072 or email us, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. I mentioned the MVP question. It comes via voicemail, and John is making a serious argument here, Ken. Here you go. Ken, John Freda in upstate New York wanted to talk for a second about the AL MVP. I understand that it's a race between Judge and Otani, and I also understand Aaron Judge is having maybe a top 10 or top 15 season all time, but I think it's clearly Shohei Otani, and I think it's clearly Shohei Otani for two reasons. He's having not a top 
10 season all time, but maybe a top two season all time. But if you want to talk about this season and this season only, I think it's pretty clear that he's a Shohei Otani is a little better, almost as good, or just a little worse than Derek Cole and Giancarlo Stanton. And I think if you had gone to the Yankees and said, money neutral, we'll give you Derek Cole and Giancarlo Stanton for Aaron Judge, and we'll give him back to you at the end of the season, that they would have made that trade. All right, John, this is a really interesting question, and it's going to be a debate that rages for the next few weeks. And I addressed it in another notes column recently, just kind of throwing it out there that what bothers me about this discussion right now is that I fear voters, certainly a lot of fans, almost have Otani fatigue. Oh man, he did this last year. So he's going to win it again this year. No, Judge is doing so much better. Judge is having an amazing season. It's an MVP season by any stretch of the imagination. He's the only Yankee really performing well in the last month, among many other things that he has done. He's gone to center field to open up at bats for others. He hasn't played a great center field by the metrics, but adequate, I would say. And clearly all the home runs, 53 as we are talking here on Sunday. He may hit 54 before this podcast is done taping. (laughs) But he's had a miraculous year, even better than Vlad Guerrero Jr. had last year. And Vlad had an amazing year last year. So what is the case for Otani? Well, I will start off by just talking about his adjusted OPS and his adjusted ERA. And what that is, for those who don't know, is basically those two statistics, OPS and ERA, adjusted for league and park factors. So it kind of makes everything equal to others. It's a good way to rate players and compare players. So at the plate, he is almost Mookie Betts. On the mound, he is almost Alec Manoa. He is both those guys in one season. Now, a lot of people will say, well, Judge's combined war is higher. Or actually, not combined. Judge's war is higher than Otani's combined war. That is true. But in both the Fangraphs and Baseball Reference tellings of war, it's getting closer. In fact, in reference, it's 7.9 for Judge, 7.6 combined for Otani. Then you can make the case, well, Otani doesn't play for a contender. That's true. It was also true last year. And I've said this many times. I prefer my MVP to come from a contender. I believe when a player is with a contending team, he is performing under a different level of pressure than a player who is not. All that said, as someone pointed out to me, a former player recently, we are effectively witnessing the second greatest two-way season of all time. And we're going to ignore that? We're not going to make him MVP? And then you can argue, well, if that's the standard, Otani will be MVP every year. Well, guess what? Maybe he should be MVP every year. (laughs) He's that good. So I don't know exactly which way I would go with this. I'm not an AL MVP voter either. Actually, I'm an NL MVP voter this year. A little bit easier choice as of right now. But this question is fascinating. And what bothers me about the discussion, as I said before, this idea of not voting for Otani because we gave it to him last year, or eh, judge this year, new face, he's been great, forget Otani. No, 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 no. We should not ever, ever lose our appreciation for what Otani is doing. 
Does it make him the MVP over Judge if Judge hits 62 and drags the Yankees into the playoffs? Because that apparently is what he's going to have to do. Not necessarily. I'm just saying, let's consider the discussion on the merits and not because we're tired of one player and the publicity one player gets because, oh, guess what? That one player does things that no player in history, including the babe, has ever done. Now, one more thing about this. I know we will get comments and tweets and maybe questions on the podcast about a New York bias in these awards. In the BBWAA awards, the way they are voted upon, that bias simply cannot exist. Two writers from each of the American League cities vote. So there are only two writers of the 30 voting from New York's chapter. You've also got two from Boston, two from Baltimore, right down the line. So don't tell me about New York bias. Don't even tell me about East Coast bias because it's balanced. If Judge wins, he wins not because of a geographic bias, but because the voters believed he was the right choice. I'm still not sure he is the right choice, but I'm eager to see this all play out over the next month. As we record this on Sunday, Aaron Judge already a leadoff home run today to uh, to add to his total. It's going to be a fun race. You know what? In general, it's better when these races are interesting than when somebody's running away with it. That's for sure. So let's continue the uh, the Judge Otani debate for the rest of September for sure. All right. Next question also coming from voicemail. Hey, Ken. It's Mahir calling from the Seattle area. And uh, I was just wondering, you know, now that Julio's locked up, um, what's next for the Mariners, right? It's, uh, it's on the brink of something that I haven't seen in my entire life you know, making the playoffs. But what's the next step in turning this team in from a uh, from a wild card contender into hopefully an AL West mainstay, you know, AL West winning mainstay um, in the next, you know, 10 years that we have, 10 plus years that we have Julio. Thanks so much. Bye. It's a good question. And I'm not sure, Mar, of the answer. I'm kind of more locked in right now on what they're doing and how this might play out this year than looking toward the future. But their future is bright. Kirby, young guy. Gilbert, young guy. They've got more young pitching coming. They have Julio. Who knows? Maybe Kellnick will turn it around. Now, they depleted their system a little bit to get Castillo. And, yeah, they lost a couple of guys who could play shortstop for them in the future. But they've got J.P. Crawford signed to an extension. So it would seem to me, development of Kyle Raleigh, all of the things that are happening with them are positive. Now, over a 10-year period, it's tough to predict. But at the same time, You've got a 1-2 now of Ray and Castillo for at least next year. Castillo, remember, is under club control for next year. So I would expect that, yes, they are going to be a force in the American League West. And, yes, it will take some tweaks, and they'll have to do some big things. Offensively, maybe they address it because they're going to lose Hanniger. And let's face it, it's been a little bit disappointing with Jesse Winker, what he has done. So, yes, they could add a bat in the offseason different places, could do some different things. But it seems to me that they're set up pretty well. The farm system's good. Maybe it's a little bit down now because Julio's been graduated. Kellenick's not developed the way we thought, and they sent that package to Cincinnati. But at the same time, just seeing Kirby with Gilbert, that's pretty impressive. So I like where they are, and I expect that this is the start of something, not simply a one-year bleep. 
We'll see if the Astros ever decline. Amazing what they do to just restock and and keep their window uh, rolling. All right, we have another Mariners question, and this one went from a potential actual situation to more of a hypothetical, Ken, from when the question was asked to where we are now. But Stephen wants to know, uh, you know, now that Chris Flexen has reached his innings plateau, which for people that don't know, over two seasons, if Flexen reached 300 innings pitched, his salary next year is $8 million as opposed to $4 million. And for a stretch there, the Mariners were really easing back on his usage. He was stuck one-third of an inning shy of three hundred for for a while. And it made people like Steven question if the Mariners were trying to manipulate things. But he got to that level. So that said, Ken, if he hadn't gotten to that level, if the Mariners had had more wiggle room to, to manipulate things and had kept him shy of three 300 innings pitched, how would the players union have reacted to something like that. They would have filed a grievance and that's going to happen. Anytime a team deliberately cuts back on the playing time of a player to prevent him from attaining some kind of threshold, a vesting threshold that would help him in some way with flexing. I believe it was a player option that increased in financial value. Once he got to that 300 inning level, we've seen a couple of other vesting options effectively kick in this year. Rodon with 110 innings triggers his opt-out and did. Verlander, 130 innings triggered his player option. That is done as well. Martin Maldonado, 90 games played with the Astros, triggered an option. Elvis Andrews was an interesting case with this this year. He has a $15 million player option if he gets to 550 plate appearances And he was at 386 when the A's released him on August 17th, ostensibly because they wanted to play Nick Allen more. That is a legitimate reason. They did want to play Nick Allen more. He is their future. Andrews is not. And Andrews caught on with the White Sox. And once that happened, once he was released and signed effectively a new contract with the White Sox, even though the A's have to pay him the balance of his salary this year, then it's no longer a situation where he can get that vest. But... If you have a deliberate situation, Stephen, to get back to your question, when a team just absolutely manipulates a player's usage to keep him from attaining some kind of threshold that will help him financially, that is grounds for a grievance. Luckily, we don't have to worry about that because the last thing we want to be talking about is union grievances in the offseason. Next question. You know, the Dodgers obviously having an incredible season rolling into October right now. So Boris wants to know, what about James Outman, Ken? What does a guy have to do to get on a postseason roster? Two cycles in one week. Does this put him in the mix to at least be playing in October? Boris, it's a really interesting question. And Outman is a fascinating guy. Seventh round pick in 2018. Not only did he have two cycles in a week, it was two in a span of four games. And if you remember, he was up briefly for four games, late July, early August. Four games while they were waiting for Chris Taylor to come off the injured list. And he went nuts in those four games. It was only 13 at-bats or so, but he hit 462, slugged 846. It was a crazy little period there. Now, you ask, why can't he be on the roster? Where is he going to play would be my question. He's not playing right field. They have this guy named Mookie Betts. He's not a center fielder. And he's not going to play left field because that's where Taylor plays. Granted, Taylor did have a poor August, batted 169 with a 570 OPS, off to a slightly better start in September. 
But this is the first year of a four-year, $60 million contract. So Outman essentially represents insurance for the Dodgers right now. They don't need him on their post postseason roster. Or, well, you can make the case. Arguably, they do. But I don't believe they're going to play him over Chris Taylor, who has had some really big postseason moments over the years. They're going to want Taylor to get untracked again. But certainly Mr. Outman has made his case. You hit two cycles in a span of four games, you're doing something pretty well. Yeah, what does a guy have to do? Well, basically, he has to have a teammate get hurt. That's what it seems like he's going to have to do. But uh, it's been cool to see. Doug has the next question. He says, now that both the National League and American League have DHs and every team will play each other at least once next season, do you think Major League Baseball should get rid of the American League and National League altogether as well as divisions and have all 30 teams play each other throughout the season and pick the best 10, 12, or 16 teams for the playoffs? Ken, I think we've talked about this a little bit, but never the no division situation. Yes, and I'll start off by saying Baseball's ultimate goal is to get to 32 teams. 32 teams would lead to geographic realignment, which would be something the sport would greatly favor. It would also be a better number for the expanded postseason going forward. So 32 is the goal. How do you get there? Well, first, this is what Manfred has said. You want to resolve Tampa Bay and Oakland. If they stay put, then maybe you expand by two. If they don't, Maybe you do some other things and you still expand, but ultimately they want to get to 32. Now, Jason Stark, my colleague at The Athletic, wrote a story in 2018 about this, about the idea of going to 32, getting rid of the leagues entirely. Now, if you did geographic realignment and you put, say, the Mets and the Yankees in the same division, the White Sox and the Cubs, the Giants and the A's, the Dodgers and the Angels... You wouldn't have the leagues as we know them. And something like that might offend a certain percentage of traditionalists who like the leagues and who have been following the leagues their entire lives. But you don't necessarily even have to break down the leagues entirely. You could do still a National and American League. You wouldn't have those groupings I just mentioned, the ones where the teams in the same geographic areas were in the same division. You could still have four four-team divisions in the National League and four four-team divisions in the American League. You could do it like that. It's just a matter of which way baseball would want to go with it. But 32 teams, to me, is the starting point for this next phase of that discussion. I like what they're doing with the schedule for next year. It seems to me to be fair, especially with all these wild cards now. You want teams playing relatively the same schedule. That's what's going to happen. But what you're talking about there is something that is and has been under discussion for quite some time. Yeah, I think you got to keep, from what you said, I think thinking of the two New York teams in the same division or same side doesn't make sense. Same with the Bay Area, same with any place there's two teams in one general city. I feel like they should be on separate sides so you can have a chance for them to meet in the World Series. But that's just uh, that's just the way I kind of look at it. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10 
$10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the Internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed Internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Uh, all right, one more voicemail this week. Hey, Ken. My name is Robert from Columbus, Georgia. Uh, I have a comment and actually a question as well. My comment is that my daughter and I love listening to your podcast on our way to and from Atlanta for her regular uh, speech therapy visits. Uh, I'm not sure how much she understands of all the things that uh, go on on the show, but I know she definitely associates your voice with baseball, and it's a fun thing that we get to share my question has to do with managers insisting on using only certain relievers for certain moments. It seems like a lot of times they will use their best relievers when the team is winning a close game, but will maybe go a step down in terms of the quality of their relievers for when the teams are losing a close game. Uh, a few weeks ago, Brian Snicker put in Jackson Stevens, I think, uh, and as the Braves were losing a very close game by only one run, uh, the Braves promptly gave up several runs. Uh, Jackson Stevens is a good reliever, but I guess my question is, why uh, would Snicker and I think other managers, why do they insist on keeping guys like Minter or Jansen or Iglesias on the bench when they could put them in to keep a game close? Robert, first off, thanks for the question. Thanks to your daughter as well for listening. And this is a good question, and it's something that, from what I can tell, a lot of fans don't have a full understanding of the way relievers are used. Now, I looked up the game that you were referring to. I think I identified it. August 17th, Mets versus Braves. The Mets are up 6-5. Jackson Stevens comes into the game for the Braves, gives up three runs. Promptly, the score goes to 9-5. Ultimately, the Mets win. The Braves lose. The score is 9-7. Now, the thing you need to remember, and all fans need to remember, is that there is a lot that we don't know about what is going on with bullpen usage on a daily basis. The managers don't fully reveal their hands always, for one thing. And also, it's not just appearances that add up to workload for a certain reliever. It's the amount of times they warm up as well. All of these things are things that teams keep track of. How many times a pitcher warms up, how many times he gets into a game, how many pitches he throws what the physical toll is, and there are ways to measure that now, how the pitcher is recovering. So on a given night, every team enters the game with a plan. Who's available, who's not. And you're right. There are certain games where you can almost sense, Robert, hey, if we can just keep it close, the tide might turn. 
let's use one of our better guys and maybe that will happen. Occasionally a manager will do that, but for the most part, no. And the reason is you want, as a Braves fan, Minter and Iglesias and Jansen, when Jansen's right, pitching as often as they can. But the fact of the matter is they cannot pitch every night. So you have to pick your spots. And it's interesting. After the Braves lost that game, the game Jackson Stevens came in and let a one-run lead become a four-run lead for the Mets, the next night, again against the Mets, 3-2 win with Minter, Iglesias, and Jansen handling the final two innings in relief of Max Fried. That was a better time to use those guys. And had they used them on the previous night, Maybe they would have been available. I mean, pitchers go back-to-back all the time, especially this late in the season. But maybe they wouldn't have been as effective. <laughs> maybe you wouldn't have had them for the game after the one that the Braves won 3-2 the next night, and you would have needed them that day. So there are all of these factors that go into it. And it's easy for us as fans and media to sit here and say, hey, where's this guy? Why did the manager use this guy? But it's often a much more complex equation than we understand. Now, that does not mean managers are flawless, incapable of making mistakes. They make mistakes all the time. Just like I make mistakes in my job and most of our listeners make mistakes in their jobs. But at the same time, with regard to bullpen usage, I would ask readers as fans and listeners as fans to kind of take a step back and try to understand the bigger picture because there's a lot more going on than just trying to win that game that night. All right, one last question. It comes from a bead, and it's about, uh, we should start this up, Ken, Ken's Book Club. That should be a thing. Uh, he says, several oh, months gosh. ago, you, you passionately recommended John Helliar's Lords of the Realm. I've now read that, and I found it to be phenomenal, but it left me wanting more. As you know, it was published in 1994, so there's nothing of the history of the last 25 years or so. Can you recommend another book that scratches the same itch as that book, but covering the more recent years of baseball history with a focus on labor and union angles? I can, though, with all due respect to the author, I don't put it in the same category as Lords of the Realm, which is honestly one of the best books I have ever read. Not just one of the best sports books or best baseball books. It's just an amazingly well-told story. The other book that I'm going to talk about is called The Game. It's by a guy named John Pessa, J-O-N-P-E-S-S-A-H. He used to work for ESPN. He worked for the Hartford Current before then. He was the sports editor there. And his book covers the years 1992 to 2010. It's not quite Lords of the Realm, but it covers the same territory. So that would be the one I would go to. Now that I think about it, I would love to write the book you're talking about. I don't have any time to write books, but that would be a fun book to do. And I just don't know if it could possibly be as entertaining as Lords of the Realm because one of the most appealing qualities of Lords of the Realm is how the owners of that period, I don't want to call them boobs, (laughs) But they weren't the sharpest tools in the shed always. And their mistakes, which, of course, Marvin Miller and the Union took advantage of, and their lack of vision is what makes the book so entertaining. So owners today, they're not always so great either. But I don't know that they're as short-sighted as the owners of back then. More to the point now, it's owners who are just not willing to spend money. And 
smart in that way, if you want to call it smart. That's their idea of smart. So it's not, again, at the same level as Lords of the Realm. But yes, it's a fascinating topic and always entertaining too. And I'm not talking about necessarily the nitty-gritty details of negotiations, but just the whole labor management dynamic in baseball, which we have seen a fresh development in recent weeks with the potential for unionization of the minor leaguers now. So yes, it's an ongoing topic. It's an interesting one. And hopefully someday someone a lot more talented than me will write a modern day Lords of the Realm and I will be first in line to buy it. It's amazing that baseball in this realm is so interesting because I think of the other sports, NBA, NFL, NHL, and I just don't think it would be an interesting read at all reading about labor negotiations and stuff. But something about this game of baseball uh, makes it fascinating. Great question. Well, also, it was the first, Tim. It was the first because free agency started with baseball and the whole Marvin Miller thing. It it is a much more compelling story in baseball than it is in the other sports. Yeah, for sure. No doubt. All right, that's it. Great questions again this week. If you want to get involved down the road, the phone number is 646-543-7072 or email us, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. We are not done on the feed this week. Great stuff coming up. Starkville Tuesday, Joe Madden talked to Jason and Doug for about an hour about modern-day managing versus years ago, the differences. Fascinating conversation, so definitely check that one out on Tuesday. Wednesday's the roundtable. Thursday, the 3-0 show, and of course, Friday, DVR and Law. Great week of content coming your way. If you want to join The Athletic, you can do it for $1 a month for six months. Just go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. Ken, where are you headed next week? Next week, we continue in the AL Central. It's going to be Cleveland at Minnesota. I have not seen the Guardians in person all year, and I'm looking forward to that, even though they've had a bit of a struggle of late. That AL Central race is not exactly a sprint to the finish, at least at this point, but it's a three-team slog, and we'll be there next week in Minnesota for it. Yeah, it's interesting, and those teams don't seem like they're going away, so that'll be a lot of fun. All right, thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll talk to you all again next week.